Thank you for tuning in to this week's On The Couch session. Just remember, this is general advice only, so please do your own research. Contact your own financial advisor regarding any of the thoughts, ideas, or insights in this podcast. Well, welcome to another session of On The Couch. My name is Henry Jennings from Marcus Today, and today joining me actually from Zurich is Mr. Greg Hall, the CEO of Alligator Energy. So I'm really lucky to have Greg joining me on the virtual couch today. It's not too bad in terms of time difference in uh, Zurich at the moment. And for those of you that uh, will recognize Alligator Energy, AGE is the stock code. And it is an ASX-listed uh, exploration company focused primarily, I guess, and we'll get into that on uranium. And Greg is a very, very experienced operator in the uranium sector. He's been around, I was going to say a long time, but it's probably doing you a slight injustice, uh, Greg, in terms of your um, your vintage. But certainly you have been around uh, an exceptionally, you've got a, a huge amount of experience in the uranium and the uh, nuclear uh, sector and lots of contacts all over the world as witnessed by the fact I guess that you are at the moment in Europe doing a bit of a tour of uh, some of your old mates so really looking forward to having a chat with Greg so welcome Greg thanks very much for coming on the program thank you very much Henry it's nice to be here and I look forward to our talk it's good yeah it's uh, it's really great to have you on here so first of all let's uh, let's talk about the underlying commodity which is one of your specialities I guess Tell me about uranium. What's happening at the moment in uranium? Well, um, Henry, most of your listeners will know the, the background that's gone on for many years um, post the, the tsunami in Japan, which which really put uh, a delay to, to new nuclear plans for some time while people reviewed the industry as a whole. Um, it was flat for quite a while. Uh, the, I guess the market probably didn't anticipate how much impact that would have. Uh, but certainly it took 10 years before there started to be a bit of a turnaround. But there's some interesting things happened in that 10 years. First of all, you had a lot of new technologies emerge in the last 10 to 15 years, the small modular reactors, the micro reactors. Uh, but in particular for the large reactors that we're all used to seeing uh, and, and hear about, there's been a lot of uh, innovation and improvement. So the, the name of the game in the new generation of reactors, Generation 3 Plus and Gen 4, is full passive safety. So instead of such as in the old nuclear power stations, you need backup power to safely shut down. The newer design reactors now have full passive safety. They rely only on gravity and convection to safely shut down. So, so you're seeing finally in our industry, uh, after the first reactors in the 50s and 60s, the second reactors in the 60, late 60s and 70s, early 80s, and then the third generation coming into the 90s, you're seeing now the innovation start to, to look at our industry in a different way. In particular, then, the other thing that's occurred, of course, in parallel, is the emphasis on uh, the impacts of climate change, but just in particular, uh, just clean power. Uh, renewable power, clean power, sustainable power, wh whatever you like to call it, that started to have an impact. So at, at the, prior to the COP26 meetings last year, when many, many countries were feeling the pressure from their populations of having to rationalise and change their power generation techniques, um, many countries came out and said, OK, there's a stable nuclear operations system we have. We've been improving the technology and the safety. There's now much better technology going forward. We're now going to revisit and put in nuclear power. So you had 
the US is for the very first time you've got both essentially both sides of politics supporting nuclear. Uh, it's been the Biden administration that's put in credit um, uh, benefits, tax credit benefits to maintain existing nuclear and to, to help support new modern nuclear. You've seen France totally reverse from, from reducing nuclear to now maintaining and increasing with new builds. You've got Finland going to do more builds, South Korea doing more builds and sell its technology further, which it has been doing in the Middle East, um, and a raft of other countries doing this. Um, the small modular reactors, which which are uh, of quite different designs, some of them, they will have an impact going forward, but it's probably about 10 years out that that impact starts. So the first commercial ones will be in the next few years. Uh, there's some old design small reactors already in place, for example, Russia, which has floating reactors, which are basically just nuclear vessel reactors, but the modern designs will take some five years to get commercialised. And then you'll start to have a, another 10 to 15% impact on your only market from those. Um, so that, that's been the combination of things. The most recent impact, of course, in the last three months is the, the war in Ukraine, which has pointed out um, uh, a situation most people knew but didn't quite realise was such a big impact. Um, really from the 80s and 90s, the US and Russia have been working together to, to dismantle old nuclear weapons downgrade that highly enriched material into the power station grade and then burn it up reactors. So from 93 onwards, the US was importing um, enriched uranium product for, for fuel fabrication for US reactors from Russia. And it's part of that dismantling of nuclear weapons treaty to bring it forward. So what it's meant is that 30% of US utilities were reliant on enriched uranium product from Russia. Now you've got the situation where the Ukrainian war, sanctions on Russia, let's diminish our reliance on Russia, both gas in Europe and, and now um, uranium from that area. So the U utilities are voluntarily taking less material now over the last few months from Russian source and they're sourcing out there. So that's benefiting companies like ours. We are an early stage development project. We're probably at least three to four years away from production. There's others which are 18 months to one, two years away from production. And we are benefiting because nuclear utilities, not just in the US, but in Europe and globally, are now wanting to meet us and say, when can you provide uranium? How can you provide it? Um, what's the jurisdiction you're in? They're looking for stable jurisdictions to provide uranium. So look, sorry for taking the time, but that's a sort of a snapshot from that sort of Fukushima day to where we are now and why there's such an interest in uranium going forward. No, no. I think it's I think it's important to set the scene, as you say, Greg, because you know when you look back at history, you know when was it uh, nuclear fission, energy, etc. Was it was what was it the nineteen thirties? Um, and here we are, twenty twenty two, and we're we're now on the next generation of, of power stations, which is going to be a a whole new leap, I guess, into the safety side of things. So it's it's taken a long time to to realise. The, the vision, I guess, of those pioneers back in the 30s. So it's, it's an interesting space, I think. No, most certainly. So so you're right. The, the fission was realised um, way back then. Um, then the first uh, sustainable reaction in the early 50s in, um, in a squash court in Chicago, can you believe? Just the first sustainable reaction. <laughs> then the first commercial reactors early in the in UK and the US. Uh, and then ramped up from there. And look, we're in an asymptotic nature now. Once you get, it's a bit like the, the year 2000 when you had tech startups 
really making breakthroughs in technologies. You've now got um, startup companies, private, fun, privately funded startup companies, making breakthroughs in SMR-type reactors. And the simple reason is, and you've seen it in the rocket business, the, the space business, these companies almost plan to fail. They say, we're going to have failures. Let's learn from the failures or we go through into designs, etc. And they get to the stage where um, they're, they're, they've really got some bulletproof operations. Now, the word failure in nuclear is not what people want to hear normally. <laughs> I was going to say. But, I was going to say. <laughs> but as you're developing a technology, it's it's not so much a, a failure in the whole operation. It's, it's just things that they, they piece by piece develop the technologies and things don't work and then they, they get a total system that works. Remembering that all these SMRs have this fail-safe technology, full passive safety. It's not like Fukushima. Fukushima reactors were a 1967 design, okay? So it's such an old design. So these reactors have, uh, along with the technology, uh, is the safety technology that comes with them. And and obviously Fukushima was was on the coast as well, which in retrospect probably wasn't the best place to put it uh, in an in an earthquake prone country. Uh, these uh, these new generations they need the same sort of water um, access than the uh, the old ones did. No, they're quite different, and and there's there's quite a few different uh, designs, so they they use it differently. So for example, um, the new scale reactors SMRs are actually fully immersed in water in an underground fully contained pool. So that's part of their fail-safe system, if you like. You've got that natural convection cooling. Mm. Um, they, they still require a, a recycled water for heat flow and things like that. But because they might be 200, 200 megawatt, 150, 200 megawatt rather than one gigawatt, they don't need the same volume of cooling as the, as the large right. reactors. Yeah. Uh, and what's all this? I mean, clearly the, the price of uranium has been pushing higher and higher for feet. For years, it was sort of stuck mm. uh, below, you know, twenty, thirty dollars a pound. Uh, what, what's that? Um, what's been happening on the price front recently? Well, as we saw in the last price run up uh, in two thousand five to two thousand twelve or eleven, really, um, you, you you've got two major pricing scenarios. One is the spot price, which is a sale of, of a parcel of uranium uh, with about 12 month, within 12-month delivery. And the other is usually a long-term pricing where nuclear utilities really, because uranium is only about 5% of their total costs, they can't afford to be without it. They can do long-term contracts and uh, some of the contracts are fixed price, some might be market-related, there's different formulas but they'll do a, a contract, sign it now, first delivery in two to three years, delivered for five or seven years, those sort of things. So you've always got a difference in the pricing structure. You, you'll notice, or your viewers, listeners might notice that the spot price has a run-up quite often and peaks up and then drops, peaks and drops, and that's because you get financial traders coming into the Iranian market and doing that. Um, you'll, you'll get people buying, producers will take the opportunity to buy and hold some stock to back up their production, and utilities will sometimes buy and hold. But the long-term underlying price has moves more slowly. Um, at the uh, end of the last month, the, the long-term price moved to between 48 to $50 US a pound, up from in the, in the 30s. So that was a significant jump. Um, we've had the spot price run up to 64, then back down to, to 55, now back down to the 40s. In general, over a, a steady market demand, um, the long-term price should be higher than the spot. Long-term implies a guaranteed supply and a premium price is attached to that. 
and that's the normal scenario. Spot then runs up and down according to mm. immediate demand. And look, what most people don't realise is generally around between 800,000 to a million pound of spot material traded every week. So it's it's you get a lot of regurgitation mm. of spot supply between yeah. traders, financials and things like that. I guess with the uh, the advent of the uh, uranium ETF that uh, came from Sprott, that's that's also driven prices as well. You're right. The Yellow Cake Fund was started in the UK uh, some years ago. There was the UPS Fund, which Sprott took over, and that's now the, the Sprott ETF. Uh, there's another one out of Kazakhstan now, and there's another one we talked about. So, so they, the ideal for them is for for um, good sized investors who want to invest in uranium in the commodity rather than the equities. Um, which have still got obviously some risk of getting the production, then they can ideally just have a link to price. And, and they've become very popular, you're right. All right. Well, let, let's, en enough of the background. Let's get into the meat and, and, and the veg here. Um, alligator, where does that fit into the picture? So Alligator Energy was a, a small uh, exploration group founded in 2010, just at the end of the last boom, but but did, did have a real expertise base, based out of Brisbane, but a real expertise base in the Northern Territory. So they had experience, people experienced in the range of uranium mine, the ERA area there, plus the Alligator Rivers exploration, plus a lot of dealings with Indigenous groups and also in, in North Queensland. So so that group initiated and picked up ground in the uh, Alligator Rivers region, did some deals with Cameco and some of the major players to come into some of the projects. And now uh, Alligator Energy is the second largest footprint in that region. And um, I only joined the company in 2015 as a non-exec director, uh, became CEO in 2018. Um, but I've got a long background there too. I was mine manager at Ranger for four years in the late right. 90s and, uh, and worked on, on the marketing side for ERA and Rio Tinto on, on uranium. So this team really developed some new techniques because Ranger and Javaluka are virtually at the surface and you can find uranium at the surface by a Geiger counter. When yep. you've underneath two to three hundred meters of barren sediments, it's much harder to detect. So you're really looking for quite a small ore body, maybe only 80 meters wide, um, underneath 400 meters of rock. Uh, you've got to develop some techniques, and that's what Alligator did. Mm. to really innovative uh, techniques detecting uh, ancient levels of lead on the surface of these sediments at the surface, which were a different type of isotope of lead than would normally occur. And that's because there might be an underlying ore body of uranium, which is, as it decays down, ends up as lead. So um, great innovation techniques, lots of um, uh, smoke and lots of interesting, some high-grade intersections, small resource at caramel of only about 7 million pounds, but haven't hit the big one yet. We're about to start work there again in Alligator Rivers um, because the Narbalek North package of new tenements, which has less ground cover, we're starting to do look at all the historical geophysics and do some new geophysics. So that's that's the history of the company. We're still in Alligator Rivers. We've still got a large footprint. In fact, we're, we're, we're doing probably more work there now uh, than we, we have done for some time. First of all, we haven't been able to get into the ground for two years. So, so we're really focused there. We also changed strategy a bit. We were a pure explorer. Um, now, with myself having a background as a manager of uranium operations and uranium marketing, one of our board members, Peter McIntyre, was the managing director on the company Extract, which found the giant HUSAB uranium deposit in Namibia and took that into the early stage production before the Chinese bought it. And, um, and in our team, our chief operating officer, Andrea Marsland-Smith, 
who has got wide experience in exploration, but also as operations manager for the Beverly and Four Mile Uranium Projects in South Australia for uranium in ISR, in situ recovery type. So, so we acquired the Samphire Uranium Project just south of Wyala during 2020. So this was before the market ran up. So yes, our, our timing was ideal, but we were, we were looking for uh, an advanced project that we could take forward. It's in situ recovery style, it's shallow, uh, discovered in 2007, 2008 by Uranium SA, the company then run by Russell Bluck. And um, some very interesting work done, some early stage uh, evaluation of processing. We're now taking that a step forward and I'll talk about that more. We also have We've got a wide range of approach in our company. We like greenfields exploration. So we've got a couple of very experienced consulting geologists working for us. In particular, we've now picked up ground, would you believe it, over the Cooper Basin, over the oil and gas basin in northern South Australia. And that's because the largest in-situ leach, in-situ recovery uranium basins in the world are associated with hydrocarbon basins. So Kazakhstan is on the top of oil and gas. Wyoming on the top of gas and coal, Texas on the top of oil and gas, and only one company has drilled a few holes for uranium in the Cooper, no more. They found some narrow bands of uranium, but we're now having a very detailed geological look at that whole basin. We've got a dedicated um, basin structural geologist doing this work, and we've just recently announced, in fact, on Monday, uh, a pickup of additional ground around that area. So that's like taking an existing model of uranium that's been producing elsewhere in the world and could it exist here in Australia in this context. We're also looking for additional uranium projects. We've been evaluating with an experienced consultant out of Denver, um, uh, other projects in the US. So I'm heading there on this trip to, to have a talk to a range of people, a range of groups. Um, so we're looking for additional uranium projects we could take forward, possibly some projects uh, within within certain countries in Africa. And and the final thing I'll mention on the on alligator in summary is the the, the Piedmont nickel cobalt project in northern Italy. Now, of course, pretty well every broker in Australia looks at me and says, "What's this? A, a management scenario? Uh, management retreat exploration scenario?" Right? Cross cross my mind, Greg. I have to say, <laughs> so I, I want that site visit. That's right. So we look. We took the opportunity to pick this up when uranium was in the doldrums. Um, nickel cobalt historical mines stopped dead at the end of World War Two. Seventeen occurrences of 0.5 percent nickel. We've had a very experienced nickel expert out of Canada come and look, and he said, "Look, it's it's so unusual to see this much nickel at the surface like this." So we again we haven't been able to get on the ground for two years. We did some initial ground truthing in 2018. Now we're about to get on with some detailed geophysics, high level plus ground, and then we've got drill permits such that we're ready to drill. We're attracting some strategic partner interest because because uh, you could almost say this is non-core. However. Europe has changed in two years. They want critical minerals, homegrown if possible, or at least accessible through reliable and sustainable type producers. They're, they're reluctant to buy things out of countries which they, they just don't, don't trust the source of. So there is now support for uh, this style of project um, and energy minerals out of uh, Europe. So we, we believe there's value for our shareholders in that. I'm heading to Italy in September, so uh, maybe there's value for me to pop along and, could be. <laughs> and have a little look. So um, uh, that could be an option. Uh, I guess it's uh, interesting the whole way Europe is changing with this, uh, with the Russian-Ukraine war and, and the, 
that critical materials and metals that they need um, to greenify, mm. I guess. And this this is part of that whole um, that whole conversation, I, I guess. Now, now you, the other day you made a, an announcement about the Big Big Lake Uranium Project. Mm. Uh, maybe you could um, tell us a little bit more about that one. Yeah, well, the, the, as I mentioned, we we picked up additional ground, and this is largely on the work of of uh, a dedicated. Structural sedimentary basin geologists we've recruited, uh, who's commenced only a few months ago, uh, along with our, one of our, our senior consultants. Essentially, the the model of this is you've got hot granites at depth in the Cooper Basin. Uh, everyone will remember the geothermal energy companies that were drilling there, looking for geothermal power, and that's because you've got radiogenic granites, con granites containing uranium and some radiation, and it generates some heat. Um, then you've got the, the sedimentary rocks that have been laying over the top of it. These sedimentary rocks are you know, three, four kilometres deep. So, you know, it's quite a deep basin. And that's where the oil and gas from old forests gets trapped. And that's what the Cooper's been for many years. But there's a few other things. The uranium, especially where you get weathered granite on top of this, uh, this basin or granite that's got a weathering profile, you get hot groundwaters leach out the uranium and, it, and that, that heat flow drives it up through structures. And at the top, there's 500 metres of sediments, which are younger age sediments. And they're the same formations that Beverly Mine is found in, Honeymoon Mine, uh, Samphire, all of the same sediments. So they're, they're, it looks like there's potential for the uranium fluids that have come up and then deposited out in these sediments. Uh, there's been, as I said, drilling that's shown narrow bands of uranium. But we've got to see, is there the right sort of channel accumulations where you could get an economic accumulation of uranium and if there's one there's bound to be more so so we we have first mover advantage here uh, it was a, a two geos who brought this to us as a model and thanks to them we, we picked it up and took it on we're now expanding it and uh, and we're about to put a lot of effort in, up there with some geophysics um, we're doing uh, indigenous agreements with the two groups in that area and and then getting on the ground drilling so very exciting green fields. If we're able to discover a brand new field, that would be a game changer for us, as uh, along with advancing our Samphire project in Wyala. It sure sounds like you've got a pretty ambitious agenda mm. uh, plan for the ne next few years. How are you going to fund all this? What's the funding position like for, for Alligator? Well, look, we're sitting on around 27 million cash now. We did some capital raisings last year uh, to support the, the work at Samphire in Wyala in particular, because we're doing some resource drilling and upgrade work there and now some process test work and a scoping study and planning a field leach trial which is like a pilot plant for in situ recovery so we wanted to fund that we wanted to fund the big lake project and alligator river so so we did two capital raisings last year uh, along with a, um, a dedicated loyalty option to our shareholders and we brought in around 30 million cash uh, in the last 12 months so that that it's all about making sure shareholders are seeing value from the money they've put in. The secondly, if your share price moves well and you, the market's very supportive, you might take the opportunity to to enhance the program. So, for example, if we want to get right into the uh, early stage approvals for the Samphire project, so we'll want to spend some time there. We're actually going to expand the footprint of the Samphire project and do some broader exploration. We want to put some funds in that. Plus, we're looking, as I said, at other projects in other jurisdictions. So we're well funded for the activity we're undertaking in the next couple of years, uh, but we still want to look for more opportunities to bring into the fold to add value to the company. Sure. What sort of, uh, with, with Samphire, what sort of um, capex is going to be involved in that project over the longer term? Well, look, the, the original desktop study we did in late 
2020, when we acquired the project, it was based purely on an inferred resource. So we, we can't um, publicly state our estimates of capital or operating costs. What we did say at the time, and what we can still say, is that they're in a similar realm to similar projects. So you've got similar projects right. such as Honeymoon, which, which has got the, the, the saline water that Samphire has. In fact, our salinity is a bit higher. Uh, Beverly and, and Four Mile have better water quality, so our costs will be in line with, with that, but we've got shallower deposit. So instead of drilling 120 metres for every production well, we're drilling 60 to 80. So uh, within give and take, we believe it'll be in the realm of the existing ISR producers in Australia. Um, we, the idea of the enhanced resource to bring a portion of the Blackbush deposit at Samfire into indicated, and the, the, then the metallurgical testing we're doing, the chemical testing, is we can then do a scoping study and announce those results. Because once you've got an indicated resource, you can announce them publicly through the ASX. Now, that, that's that's due in the early third quarter, is the intent to do that. I was going to say, um, you know, we're halfway through 2022, which I'm still staggered that the years slip by. I seem to spend most of it in isolation. But anyway, um, what um, what's the program for the rest of the year and what, what sort of milestones should we be looking at for, for Alligator as, as catalyst for re-raisings in the share price, I suppose. Well, look, in particular for Samfire, as I mentioned, we've completed our drilling. We've we've been releasing results, about three three lots of results, which show that we've reinforced, in particular, the higher grade. Look, 0.5% to 0.8% uranium is, is a very good grade for ISR. We've, we've really interpreted the structures and layers there well. That's now with our consulting geologist for resource enhancement. Uh, that data, we anticipate towards the end of June, we would hope to have an updated resource maybe early July to get out. We have the ANSTO test work, which will, should come through in July, early August, and then we will have the scoping study being compiled up in the third quarter and the announcement of that scoping study. So that will be the first look at what Samfire is capable of in terms of a producing operation. Um, meanwhile, we will get back on the ground drilling there for and, and do some extensional uh, geophysics work. In Alligator Rivers, we're compiling up the historical geophysics. We're undertaking new geophysics and want to get on the ground there for some drilling. Uh, whether we'll be able to get on the ground drilling this year or not, I'm not certain. Uh, it has taken longer to well, longer for the Indigenous groups to be comfortable with people coming back into the area with COVID, and we understand that. That's fine. So we certainly have meetings planned for late June, work programs for geophysics. We'll announce targets that will come out of that geophysics in the latter part of the year. Big Lake, the, the geophysics will be uh, that we're doing now uh, with the underlying work will lead to some uh, drilling planning. Um, we're negotiating exploration agreements with the indigenous groups to get on the ground in the latter part of this year for, for the drilling. And with uh, with Piedmont, the geophysics is planned, I think, for August, August September. The, the biggest issue, like every exploration company in this country right now, is getting the equipment you need and the manpower you need, the specialist manpower. So mm -hmm. we had a, geophysics, a company lined up with all the geophysics tools we need to be shipped to Italy to do this work uh, to start in July, fell over. We now got it in September. So um, Samfire will be the lead news um, and then followed by the big lake on the ground work and, and Piedmont and Alligator Rivers. Yeah, I was, I was going to ask about that, Greg, because you know we're, we're constantly being told about the inflationary pressures staffing issues uh, which have been a big issue for some of the mining companies in WA through COVID. Um, you're obviously seeing those as well. Are you seeing the pricing pressures as well as 
just being able to get boots on the ground and equipment in the right place at the right time? Yeah, a little bit. Um, uh, for example, during our soundfire drilling programs, you know, accommodation costs were high because there's so much regional construction activity in Whaler. Um, a transport up and down, you've got to book ahead. Uh, if you want to fly, hire cars were at a premium. We were told you've got to book a hire car a month ahead, otherwise you might not get it. So we're seeing that 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 sort of aspect of the inflationary part of the business for resources. Um, we anticipate that we're paying we'll be paying full cost for any geophysics work uh, teams. Uh, quite often, when the industry is so busy, you you'll get teams that will want to take more breaks. It just changes the cycle of the industry for a while. So you've got to accept those costs. We are seeing it. Recruitment-wise, we are actively recruiting a geological team for Samfire, and uh, it's a slow process. You can still target and obtain the highly skilled people, uh, but it will take at least twice as long. Right. Um, I, I, I was going to ask you, we've seen a little bit of... Um... I guess a bit of M and A activity in the space recently with uh, with Vimy and Deep Yellow, and of course we've got um, movement at the station with Paladin coming uh, back on. Well, hopefully coming back online at some stage. Do you do you see the the, the sector ripe for um, for more M and A activity between the, the, some of these um, explorers and, uh, and wannabe producers? Yeah. Yes, I do. Um... You know, in fact, it's on it's on our radar. We we're looking at projects, we're looking at companies, because when you're dealing with nuclear utilities who who are long term, they 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 make thirty year plans. Um, they buy uranium over a ten year cycle. Uh, they have constantly renewing new um, uranium contracts. You've got to to be someone that they can see as a reliable producer. Now, now one of the best ways to reduce your risk of production is to have more than one producing asset. So there's logical things here. If you've got one uh, uranium company that's got a reasonably experienced team with an asset that which you can produce, plus another which is producing or could produce, you pull that together, you've immediately de-risked the company. You've added value because nuclear utilities will rather, uh, will look, put a better premium on someone who can really genuinely supply. So I, yeah. I think the, the space is ripe for that. Um, we're not afraid of it. Our board has uh, discussed this many times, both acquisitions from Greenfield right through M&A. And um, we're going to look for something that's going to make sure we've got value for shareholders if it's going to take the opportunity forward. Uh, none of us will stand in the way of the right deal that will make things happen. And certainly if we see a good deal, we'll try and drive that deal. We have tended on projects in the States, haven't been successful yet. But um, we are actively seeking these opportunities. And I agree with you. Uh, it's, it's the right... There's always a stage in the cycle of any commodity. Gold has seen it. Nickel will see it, that this work happen. And, uh, and I think we're in the thick of that right now. It's certainly uh, an industry that's got a, a few tailwinds. And I guess we've got a, a new tailwind in Australia with a, with a new government. And clearly the, the, the people have talked uh, about climate change and we've seen this sort of teal... Um, swing and the, and the Greens doing better on climate change. So this this could be a, a good time, I guess, for um, alternate energy suppliers in, in uranium in Australia. And you've got, of course, the Europeans and Biden, etc. So you mm. could be in for a, a nice little patch at the moment. Well, look, the, from the uranium mining perspective, both both uh, major parties are supportive of, of uranium mining federally, within South Australia and within the Northern Territory. 
So you, you've got that, that, that's, as you see, one of the reasons we're in South Australian Northern Territory is you've got that, that consistent support. Um, Queensland and West Australia have waxed and waned depending on the power, uh, who's in power at the time. Currently, the state Labor governments there don't support uranium mining, but they don't have to. They've got so much other mining. You know, mm. Do you need to take on a fight with uh, the, the left of your party just to get a few uranium mines going? That's a logical thing, and we understand it. Mm. But I think federally, um, you know, the last uranium mine that was approved was approved by a, a Labor federal environment minister um, in four, four miles. So you, you, you will see that there's a pragmatism, I think, in both parties about going forward. What may change with the federal election outcome is um, will there be the same embracement of potential new nuclear technologies? Let's see how it goes. In Australia, we haven't had nuclear power. It's still illegal to enrich material and have nuclear power. But with AUKUS, with the defence strategy, where we're going to have nuclear power generators coming into our ports, we have to change and modify the legislation to allow maintenance, monitoring, checking of those things. So there is going to be some change at some stage to the legislation to allow nuclear power reactors in this country. Let's see how long it takes. Um, at the moment, uranium is a fungible product. You can ship it anywhere in the world. It's a very low volume, high value product. It's uh, the, the shipping um, conditions are well established. So uh, we're, we're reliant on the global market, not, not the Australian market. But I myself personally am very hopeful that Australia will start to evaluate this. The previous government had a, a, a part of its white paper policy, a review of SMR technology around 2030. I would hope that this government would at least take an open mind and, and, and maintain that ability to look at the industry going forward. Exciting times, I guess. It's um, exciting times for Alligator, exciting times for the uh, the uranium industry as well. Uh, it is. It, uh, uh, you, you see these ups and then you see some downs, but I think there's now a consistency of purpose for uh, nuclear power, especially the modern innovations in it, which could see this industry now become part of the a part of the future power mix on a consistent basis because mm. it has been uh, we have seen a full uh, a few full starts i guess in the uranium uh, sector from time to time and it's one of those ones that has come and gone uh, in previous cycles so uh, let's keep our fingers crossed that it works out this time greg it's been an absolute delight having you on the podcast today thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you it's been great and i really thank you for your time i know it's very valuable and uh, it is a little earlier in uh, in zurich but uh, i wish you luck with the rest of your trip and uh, thank you very much once again for coming on the show all right thank you very much Henry. thanks for your time and your listeners time all the best my pleasure thanks greg bye-bye